Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Have you heard of the Gnostics before? Gnostics of different types claim to have secret knowledge of humanity's true origins and destiny. They were intellectuals who combined the philosophical thinking of their day with Jewish and Christian scripture to produce a compelling alternative to biblical Christianity in the second century. In today's episode, you'll learn what the Gnostics believed, mostly from their book, The Secret Revelation of John. Next, we'll see how Valentinus adapted the Gnostic myth and recruited Christians to join his secret meetings. Although this material is esoteric and somewhat difficult to grasp, I'm convinced a working knowledge of Gnosticism is necessary to understand theological and Christological developments in the 3rd and 4th centuries, especially in Alexandria, Egypt. Here now is episode 485, part 5 of our early church history class, Gnostics and Valentinians. Early church history number five, Gnostics and Valentinians. We're going to spend most of our time looking at the Gnostics, and then we'll cover the Valentinians. No one's sure when the Gnostics first started. There's a lot of debate about it, but we know for sure that in the second century, the Gnostic movements were flourishing. There's a lot of scholarly controversy over the word Gnostic and the term Gnosticism. I'm not really going to get into that. I'm just going to kind of use it in a, in a generic sense. And to begin with, I'm going to focus on the Sethian Gnostics. It's one branch of the Gnostics that I think is a really helpful way in, introduction to the subject. And I'm going to focus my thoughts and my readings on one book in particular called The Secret Revelation of John. And I'm going to basically cruise through the entire book of the Secret Revelation of John, also called the Apocryphon of John, and I'm just going to survey it, balancing from place to place. And just like I covered in our introduction to this class, I want to put you in touch with the primary sources. I want you to feel, I want you to hear their words. I don't want to just give you my interpretation. I want you to feel how strange it is to you and uh, want you to develop your ability to read this kind of literature, because it is, I'm going to warn you right now, totally weird. All the quotations from the Secret uh, Revelation of John are from Karen King's edition, and we're going to begin with the monad. Are you ready? Okay. Secret Revelation of John, chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. And he said to me, the monad is a monarchy without anything existing over it. It exists as the God and Father of the all, the invisible which dwells above the all, imperishableness which exists as the pure light upon which it is not possible for any eye to gaze. Verse 10, it alone is eternal since it does not need anything, for it is totally perfect. It does not lack anything such that anything would perfect it. 28, for it is not possible for anyone to know it. 30, it does not participate in the eons or in time. 34, for this one gazes marveling at itself alone in its light. This is talking about the highest, maximally great being in the universe. And when I say universe, I'm not even talking about our physical universe. I'm talking about a spiritual realm before our universe even existed. And this is where all of the Gnostic thought begins, is with the one, the monad, the monarchy. You can't hardly say anything about it, because no one has access to it. We just know that it's maximally great, it's perfect in every way, and that nothing can touch it, there's nothing before it, and it is the source of everything else. And what it does is gaze. That's about it. It contemplates, it cogitates, and it just looks. And it's referred to in the secret revelation of John as an it, not a he or a she, but an it. And they capitalize the I on it to indicate to us we're talking about the monad or what we would call basically the highest God. 
All right, let's press on. We get some emanations. Some excitement happens in the heavenly realm here. Chapter 5, verse 13. And it's thinking, it's, capital I, it's thinking became a thing. And she who appeared in its presence in the luminescence of its light was revealed. She is the first power who came into being before them all. She appeared from its thought. The pronoia of the all. Uh, verse 20, the first power, the glory of Barbalo. That one is the first thought, protonoia. And these terms are all equivalent. Pronoia, Barbalo, protonoia. It's all referring to the same being. Chapter 6, verse 1, Barbalo requested the invisible virginal spirit to give her foreknowledge with a capital F. And the spirit stared. When it stared, foreknowledge was revealed and stood with pronoia. Verse 7, and again she requested it to give her indestructibility, and it stared. And in its staring, indestructibility was revealed. And she stood with thought and foreknowledge. Verse 12, and Barbalo requested it to give her eternal life. And the invisible spirit stared, and in its staring, eternal life was revealed. 18, and again she asked to give to her truth. And the invisible spirit stared, truth was revealed. 23, this is the pentad of the eons of the Father. 25, Barbalo, thought, foreknowledge, indestructibility, eternal life, and truth. So these are the five emanations, the five first emanations of what's called eons, spelled A-E-O-N-S. And these eons, according to David Brocky, are simultaneously actors, places, extents of time, and modes of thought. So these are beings, but they also have abstract names, like foreknowledge, eternal life. But these are beings in this origin story of everything. These eons live in a spiritual realm called the Pleroma. It's also called the All. It's also called the Entirety. It's also called the fullness. These are all kind of translations of the Greek word pleroma. And it's very similar to Plato's realm of the forms. If you've read any Plato, these ideas are going to sound familiar to you because he talks about a realm of perfect forms that where there's no changing and there's perfect harmony in a realm beyond the physical universe. And the Gnostics are picking up on that because that's just the air they breathe. Now let's talk about Christ, Christ's unique origin and the creation of the all. We'll look at chapter 7, verse 1. And it, capital I, gazed into Barbalo. So Barbalo, just to be clear, is the first. She's the awesomest, the best of all created beings. The it, the monad, stares at Barbalo. If you remember all the other times, it, the monad, stare just off into space, like just in general, and something was created. In this case, it is staring at Barbalo. So this is somewhat of a couple's experience, I could put it that way. Uh, <laughs> it's going to get interesting. All right, back to chapter 7 here. 7 verse 1, And it gazed into Barbalo in the pure light which surrounds the invisible spirit and its luminescence, and she conceived from it. So we have conception and beginning here. It begot a spark of light in a light resembling blessedness, but it was not equal to its greatness. This one was only begotten of the mother father who had appeared. He is his only offspring, the only begotten of the father, the pure light. Verse 8, and it anointed him from its own goodness slash Christhood, until he became perfect, not lacking anything of goodness slash Christhood, because it had anointed him in the goodness slash Christhood of the invisible spirit. Perfectly clear, right? So you have this special creation of the being called Christ, the eon called Christ, who is different than the other eons, not in supremacy of time, this is actually the sixth being created. So you had the five original, Barbalo, and then the other four. And then Christ, but Christ was a, was a couple's creation. So it's, uh, there's a begottenness, there's a conception of Christ. And as a result, his mother is Barbalo, the 
mother-father, and then his father, if we could even use that term, is the it, the monad, the supreme, superior, about which we can't say anything. Then we see in verse 19, and thought willed to create a work through the word of the invisible spirit. So thought here is one of these original eons before Christ. And now thought is wanting to create a work through the word of the invisible spirit. The word word is logos. And his will became a work, 22, and the word followed the will for because of the word, this should make you think of the Bible, because of the word, Christ, the divine autogenes, created the all. Another translation or another manuscript has through here instead of because of. So that for through the word, Christ, the divine autogenes, created the all. 29, and the invisible virginal spirit placed autogenes, which is just another word, name for Christ, as true God over the all, and it subjected to him, to Christ, all authority and the truth which dwells in it so that he might know the all. So here we have Christ doing something with the word that generates the all, which should remind you of John, the prologue of the gospel of John. See, we're reading the secret revelation of John, which is riffing on the gospel of John, which was written before it. In the Gospel of John, in the prologue, in the first five verses, we read, in the beginning was the Word. Isn't that interesting? In our English translations, it's capitalized as if it's this independent, personal being. And this Word was with God. So you can't be the Father if you are with the Father, right? And this Word was God. And another translation for this that works in Greek is you can actually put an A there. This Word was a God. Now, again, we're reading this in English translation, but they wouldn't be. They would be reading this in Greek, and that ambiguity would be clear for them. So they're they're reading this text in this way. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. That phrase, all things, is just like where it said in the secret revelation of John, he, um, because of the word, the divine autogenes created the all. It's the same concepts. They were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. This is the Greek word zoe. We're going to come back to that. And the life was the light of men. The light shined in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So Christ is over everyone else except Barbalo and the monad, but there's still no physical universe yet. There's a lot of contemplating. There's a lot of perfect harmony. Everybody's happy. Everybody's smiling in the spiritual realm. It actually reminds me a lot of Socrates. If you read the Phaedo, which is one of Plato's books, where Socrates comes to die, Socrates is actually happy because he says, I'm finally going to get to meditate on abstract truth and reality without my body interrupting me. So that's a sensibility ancient people had that the body is a hindrance to proper meditation and knowledge and cogitation, which is is really what they want to do. All right, now the plot thickens. Drama enters the heavenly realm through the eon known as Sophia. Sophia is the Greek word, anybody know? For wisdom, very good. So secret revelation of John chapter 10, verse 1 says, Sophia of the Epinoia, Being an eon, thought a thought from within herself. That's bad. And the thought of the invisible spirit and foreknowledge. She willed a likeness to appear from within herself without the will of the spirit. It had not approved. And without her partner and without his consideration, and an imperfect product appeared from her. And it was different from her pattern because she created it without her partner. 13. She cast him, this uh, generated being, out from her, outside of those places, so that none among the immortals might see him. 16. And she placed a throne in the midst of the cloud in order that no one see him. 18. She named him Yaldabaoth. Major, major figure in the story here. Yaldabaoth. You can see it's kind of like a combination of Hebrew words. Sounds kind of like Yahweh and Sabaoth and all mixed, mashed together, right? Verse 19, this is the chief ruler, 
the one who got a great power from his mother, which is Sophia. So that's the origin of Yaldabaoth. And this is a child that she, you can notice how emphasized it is on the fact that she contemplated without her partner. In the Pleroma, among the eons, everything is paired off in these partners. You have masculine and a feminine component for each. And she's contemplating without her masculine counterpart. And it produces this bastard child who's misshapen and characterized by ignorance, arrogance, and power. Power because he is generated from her, and she's a powerful eon. Ignorance, because she hides him away. Immediately in this cloud, he has no idea about anything beyond himself. So he really thinks he is the best, and that's where the arrogance comes in as well. And then Yaldabaoth does what all the other eons do. He starts generating his own eons. He's getting crowded up there. Chapter 12, verse 11. He is impious in his madness, she who dwells in him. For he said, I am God and no other God exists except me, since he is ignorant of the place from which his strength had come. He only knows Sophia. He only knows his mother. He doesn't know anyone else. And it's like debatable whether or not he even knows his mother. So he thinks he's the only God. He continues generating and he, until he produces 365 angels and demons. After surrounding himself with all these spirit beings, he says, Yaldabaoth says, chapter 14, verse 2, I am a jealous God, and no other God exists beside me. You can see where this is headed, right? Maybe you can, maybe you can't. Let's talk about Adam, because that's the next thing. Chapter 15, verse 12, and he said, Yaldabao said to the authorities who dwell with him, the other 365 spirit beings he generated, Come, let us create a human according to the image of God and according to our likeness, so that his image might illuminate us. And they created using the power from each of them according to the characteristics which they had been given. 19. And they said, Let us call him Adam, in order that his name might become a power of light for us. This is a clear allusion to Genesis 1.26, right? Where God says, let us make man in our image. The word man there is the word Adam in Hebrew. Let us make Adam in our image. And so in this case, though, it's not the high God. It's the lowest eon, Sophia, who misbehaved and produced this bastard child who then produced these other deformed spirit angels and demons, and he's talking to them. You're not dealing with the high, now you're dealing with the low end of the spiritual realm, barely even spiritual. And they're talking about, yeah, let's make a human being. Now, what's really interesting about this is that when they make him, he's still not physical, and there's still no physical universe yet. We're still in the spiritual realm, okay? So just keep that in mind. So in chapter 16, there's a full list of every body part of Adam right down to like his left shin, his toenail, you know, his earlobe, like all the parts listed out in every one of the angels that made each one of the parts. And then in chapter 17, all the different angels and how they animated each of the different parts to function. Then in chapter 17, verse 64, it says, and all the angels and demons labored until they had created the psychic body. So he's not physical, he's psychic. He's made of the soul substance. The body remained motionless for a long time, and Sophia, who has not been doing much this whole time, she looks down and she sees what's going on with her son doing all this stuff, making this prototypical human. And so she goes to the mother father, which is Barbalo, the first created being, and says, we got to find a way to retrieve the power from Yaldabaoth, because Yaldabaoth is a bad boy. So... She sends, Barbalo sends, five lights down to Yaldabao, who advise him to, quote, breathe into his face by your spirit and his body will arise. Tricking him to pass his own spark of the divine to Adam, this spirit being called Adam, who is now going to inherit the spark of the divine that Sophia had given to Yaldabaoth, and he's not going to have it anymore. Obviously, Yaldabaoth is not happy about this situation, getting tricked. And so he is very jealous 
because as soon as Adam starts moving about and exuding light, Yaldabaoth and the others realize that he's greater than all of them. He's superior to them. So they acted against Adam, and chapter 18, verse 18, it says, they threw him down into the lowest part of all matter. And they made a body, and they called the body a tomb. So physical stuff is bad in the secret revelation of John. And it's also called, the body is called the chain of forgetfulness, to make you forget who you really are. So Adam became a mortal, physical human being, but he had this inner spirit as well, which came from above his creator to the creator of his creator, to Sophia. So the mother and father, Barbalo, sent a helper to Adam called Epinoia, which is a feminine, I don't know what to call it, like a spirit, a principle, to help guide Adam, to provide him with correction and knowledge and truth about his, his origin and the spiritual realm above Yaldabaot. So Adam ends up having two huge advantages. One, he's got the spark of the divine, which makes him awesome. And number two, he's got epinoia, which is sort of like a, a spirit guide of some sort that is going to help him. He's also got two major disadvantages. He's encased in physical flesh, in a created universe, in this low realm called, we call the universe, the physical world, and he's got Yal and 365 angels and demons against him. So what's going to happen? That's the question, right? Well, that's where we come to paradise. In the secret revelation of John, which is prototypical of many Gnostic theories, although there are lots of variations on this, the tree of life is bad, and the tree of knowledge is good. It's the exact opposite of what the book of Genesis says. The rulers place Adam in paradise and surround him with all these delicious foods so that he will be idle and distracted and indulge in pleasure and not realize who he is. And it says the fruit of the tree of life is death. It's exactly the opposite of what you would expect. However, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is epinoia. This spirit guide sent from way on high is actually the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so in the, in the narrative, Christ interrupts telling this whole story of all this stuff and says that he set him right, that Christ set Adam right so that they would eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. At which point, John asks Jesus in the narrative and says, I thought that was the snake. But the snake is the one that got them to eat from the tree. By the way, the word for knowledge is gnosis. And these people are called the Gnostics, the knowers. So anything to do with knowledge is premium for them. That's, it's going to be good. And so what Christ says is that he actually appeared as an eagle on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to convince Adam to eat from it. But the snake kind of blocked him and the snake wanted to convince him to do a certain thing, but, he, but Adam didn't even obey the snake, so it's not even really an issue. But then the snake cast a trance on Adam that made him dumb and lose his uh, ability to think. So then Epinoia herself entered into Adam. The spirit being just entered into him completely. And Yaldabaoth sees this happen, and he says, I'm going to get that Epinoia out of you. And Epinoia is a feminine principle. Just keep that in mind. So Yaldabaoth tries to reach inside of Adam and pull from his rib Epinoia out of him, but you can't grab a spirit being so it doesn't work. So instead, what he ends up doing is creating a, a copy of the spirit being, in, which is the shape of a woman. Are you still with me? It all makes perfect sense now. <laughs> uh, so he makes this physical shape in the, in the image of a spirit of Epinoia. And then Epinoia lifts the veil from Adam. And he's once again conscious and aware. And he looks at the woman next to him. And he says, now this is bone from my bones and flesh from my flesh. Because of this, man will leave his father and his mother and he will cling to his wife. And they will no longer be two, but a single flesh which is 
almost word for word from Genesis. But that I just quoted to you from the secret revelation of John, chapter 21, verse 20. <laughs> and so Adam calls her Zoe. You thought I was going to say Eve, yeah. right? Yeah. Calls her Zoe. Zoe is the word for life. We've got one more phase, one more phase in the storyline. And I'm going to warn you now, it's a doozy. It's a doozy. You thought, it was in, you thought it was out there before, but... All right, so Yaldabaoth obviously is upset again because every time he tries to do something, he, he, he fails. Powers from on high are, are monkeying with the situation. So he casts them out of paradise. Now you have an Adam and a Zoe, who's really also Eve. You knew that. Uh, he casts them out of paradise. At this point, he notices, he kind of takes note of the woman. and He's like, wow. Look at that virgin next to Adam. So, at this point, way up on high, Barbalo, who's like the highest there is other than the one, the monad, sees that Yaldabaoth is about to have relations with Zoe. And so, she sends down some beings to snatch Zoe out of Eve. And Yaldabaoth defiles Eve. And we read in chapter 22, verse 16, And he begat two sons from her, Yaldabaoth and Eve. The first is Elohim, and the second is Yahweh. Elohim, so this is like Greek transliterations of Hebrew words. Elohim has a bear face, while Yahweh has a lion face. The one is righteous, while the other is unrighteous. Yahweh is righteous, but Elohim is unrighteous. He set Yahweh over the fire and the wind, and he set Elohim over water and earth. He named these Cain and Abel with trickery in mind. All right, so that's Cain and Abel. Of course, you know that uh, Cain killed Abel, as the story goes. And then at that point, Adam also has relations with Eve after these others are begotten and uh, produces Seth. Seth is the third child in the Bible, right? And Seth is like the good guy. And this is why they call them Sethian Gnostics, okay? Because Cain and Abel, well, Abel doesn't last. So Cain, Cain is like all the bad guys, and Seth and his descendants are all the good guys. One last thing, Yaldabaoth made them drink the water of forgetfulness. And then they forgot who they were and where they came from. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why our world is messed up. <laughs> Makes perfect sense, right? Our world is messed up because the God who made it is a fallen, ignorant, arrogant, and powerful being. That's Yaldabaoth. That's how the Gnostics believed. I don't think I really need to say this, but for the record, I, I completely disagree with all of this. Just so that you're clear. Anyhow, but I'm presenting it so that you understand it. That's all. So anyhow, the core problem, according to the Gnostics, I mean, again, their term is knowers. The core problem with the world is ignorance. It's not moral misbehavior. It's not sin. It's ignorance. A lot of times these two go hand in hand, but knowledge is, is first. So this is a religion catering to platonic sensibilities. By platonic, I mean the teachings of Plato. The teachings of Plato were very fashionable in the second century world, a specific form of Platonism called Middle Platonism. And when you read this literature, if you're a Middle Platonist, you're, you're like, oh, yeah, that makes, oh, yeah, that's from the Timaeus. Yeah, I've read that. But yeah, okay. The Demiurge, okay, so you're saying the Demiurge is evil. That's interesting. I haven't heard that one before. And, you know, there's, there's sort of like a lot of play in. Also, if you have exposure to the Jewish scriptures, you're seeing a lot of tie-ins, right? If you have exposure to the New Testament, because Christ is one of these individuals involved, and Christ is a very exalted individual in the secret revelation of John. So in the afterlife, you ended up with three possibilities for the Gnostics in this book, the Secret Revelation of John. There are souls who flee from evil. They will be admitted into the repose of the eons. So if you're a soul who is of this like fleeing from evil type, then you are upon death going to reascend to the highest realm. Souls who are ignorant will go to Yaldabaoth's prison, where they will be consorted with. I'm not sure exactly what that means, consorted with. We were going to be consorted with by the authorities 
until you wake up and receive knowledge and you awaken from your forgetfulness, and then you'll be okay. <laughs> Equivalent to later Catholic idea of purgatory, right? It's kind of unpleasant, but then like eventually you're good. That's category two there. Category three are souls who understand but turned away. They get tortured with eternal punishment. So they don't, they don't get out of jail. David Brockie writes in, in this book called The Gnostics, which, by the way, if you're going to read one book on the Gnostics, psst, I'd recommend this one. It's, it's, it's great because it's skinny. It's a thin book, and he's, he's brilliant. So he says, The myth, then, emphasizes the transcendence of the ultimate God and the corresponding unfolding of God into lower mediating divine principles, the lowest of which does the work of creating the material universe. This uh, result of all this is that it generates a buffer between the ultimate God and the material universe. All these mediating divine principles buffer the great God from actually getting his hands dirty, so to speak, or its hands dirty. These ideas are not unique to Gnostics. Rather, they are at home in the discourse of Middle Platonism. These thinkers looked for guidance on the world's origin to Plato's dialogue called Timaeus, in which a divine being called the craftsman, or demiurge, creates the visible universe as a copy of the eternal forms. The craftsman creates lower gods who then assist him, and the universe that he creates and in which we live is the best possible image of the perfect spiritual world. That's for the book, the Timaeus, which was out hundreds of years before the Gnostics ever got started. The Gnostics are taking that and they're modifying it. In the Gnostic story, it's not a good craftsman. It's a bad, misshapen craftsman who's jealous and who thinks he's the only god, but there's superior gods to him. They're riffing on that story, as I mentioned. Souls of the Gnostics are those who are aware of the true nature of reality and of their place in reality. Because their descendants of Adam, who had the spark of the divine, through Seth, pass it down. And if you are a Gnostic by definition, you must be a child, a descendant of Seth. Because why else would you be enlightened? Why else would you know? So you really belong way up there. You don't belong down here in this world. The Gnostics really appealed to a lot of people. Let's talk about the life of Christ a little bit. Christ is a spirit being, not to be confused with Jesus. Jesus is a human being. Christ existed from way back, way before Yaldabaoth was a glimmer in Sophia's eye. Okay, there was Christ. And so Christ comes down to earth and says to Jesus, whoever hears arise from lethargic sleep, and Jesus woke up. Christ advised him to fortify himself against the angels of poverty and demons of chaos. And Christ sealed Jesus so that death would not have power over him. From this day on. So that's how the secret revelation of John is conceiving of Christ and Jesus as two separate beings. That Christ is a spirit being that comes down and inhabits Jesus or works with Jesus, but it's not the same as Jesus. Two different things. Other Gnostic stories and Valentinian stories and the Gospel of Thomas and later versions of these different systems of belief, they, they formulate it differently. There are lots of variations here. One of them is found in the second treatise of the great Seth, chapter 55, verse 30 and following, where it says, For my death, it's talking about Christ, which they think happened, happened to them in their error and blindness. They nailed their man up to their death, for their minds did not see me, for they were deaf and blind. It's talking about the rulers of this age, the angels and demons created by Yaldabaoth. But in doing these things, they render judgment against themselves. As for me, on the one hand, they saw me. They punished me. Another, their father was the one who drank the gall and the vinegar. It was not I. They were hitting me with the reed. Another was the one who lifted up the cross on his shoulder, who was Simon. Another was the one on whom they put the crown of thorns. But I was rejoicing in the height over all the riches of the archons and the offspring of their error and their conceit, and I was laughing at their ignorance. And all their powers I brought into subjection. For when I came down, no one saw me. For I kept changing my forms above, transforming from appearance to appearance. And on account of this, 
When I was at their gates, I kept taking their likeness, for I passed them by quietly, and I was viewing the places, and I did not fear, nor was I ashamed, for I was undefiled. So interpreting that, B.A. Pearson writes, the sufferings endured at the crucifixion were not suffered by the real Jesus. I think you're getting that, right? So the Gnostic Jesus is not suffering on the cross, but only by the physical body which he inhabited, the creation of the archons whose crucifixion brought about the archons' own destruction. This sounds very much like scripture. For him, the divine news Christ descended into the human Jesus and displaced his human soul and following Jesus' crucifixion, ascended to the Father who had sent him. So we have the archons who created physical stuff in the first place as a prison for the spiritual beings who became human that by killing him, they, they destroyed themselves. It's kind of a paradox. And so Christ is laughing about it. Let me just summarize a little bit here, and then I want to cover the Valentinians. As I mentioned to you, a Gnostic is a knower, basically equivalent to what we would say an intellectual. It's not necessarily a defined group initially, but a group of Christians who are saying, oh, we're the intellectuals. We're the ones that know. We're knowers. And then over time, it, it turns into more of a label that people use against them, especially in the second half of the second century. Gnosticism is a reformulation of Judaism and Christianity in light of Greek philosophy and epic storytelling. I love this description by Doug Metzger from his podcast, Literature and History. He says, Gnosticism is what you get if we put Plato, the Old Testament, the New Testament, Stoicism, and maybe some pot brownies in a blender and switch it on. It sounds a little trippy. You know, all these different beings and all their jealousy and rivalry and what they're doing. But look, here's the fact of the matter. The truth is, ancient people, especially Christians in the second century, especially educated Christians, found this incredibly compelling, incredibly attractive, and they made converts. They made converts enough that Christians that didn't believe in all this stuff got really threatened and responded as much as they could to defeat the Gnostics. If God is good, why do we have evil in the world? The Gnostic would say, God isn't good. That's why we have evil in the world. It's like the simplest answer ever to the problem of evil question, right? I don't think it's true, but it, I got to admit, it's, it's easy. It's an easy answer. Michael Williams writes, the Sethian mythologies provided explanations for the presence of evil and injustice that were likely compelling to some people because of the ways in which these myths distanced divinity from responsibility. That's a key thing that that whole storyline does. For moral disorder and any other imperfections in the cosmos, while at the same time they offered assurance that the divine was nevertheless intimately involved in and in control of the progress of events in this life. So you get to have both, a God who cares about you, and that's different than the God who created the universe, who's actually bad, and that's why the universe is bad. I would disagree. I don't think the universe is bad, but that's a separate story. All right, on to the Valentinians. Valentinians are called after a man named Valentinus. Some people call him Valentinus, but I call him Valentinus, who lived uh, around the years 100 to 800. If you see me with a, the abbreviation C here, that stands for circa, which is the Latin word that means about, approximately. In other words, we don't know. Anytime you see a C with a period, don't think, oh, that guy's so smart. You should think, oh, that guy doesn't know when this date really happened, okay? So C100 to C180 means we don't really know, but around that period of time. Valentinus was born in Egypt, had a great education in Alexandria, was a sophisticated thinker, a very good writer, and he had lots of followers. He encouraged them to pursue education and theology. He got to Rome, so he was in Alexandria. We're going to talk a lot about Alexandria in the future. Very, very important place. But in the middle of the second century, guess where you need to be? All roads lead to Rome. So he goes to Rome sometime between 136 and 140. He goes to Rome, Valentinus does, and he stays in Rome at least until the 160s. So he's in Rome for 20 or 30 years. And uh, there's a rumor even 
which I seriously doubt is true, but there's a rumor that he was even up to be the bishop of Rome. They voted for somebody else or chose somebody else instead. Unlike Marcion, Valentinus was never kicked out of the church. Now, his teaching was a streamlined version of the Gnostic myth I was showing you. Okay, so it's a streamlined version. That's a very complicated version. And believe it or not, I simplified it a lot for you. It's way more complicated than what you got. Okay, every time there was a little dot, dot, dot in my, my quotation, you're skipping out chunks of text that I'm sparing you from. You can go back and read it on your own if you want. But uh, Valentinus streamlined it way more than that, and he put Christ as a more central figure in the whole storyline, and he toned down the offensive aspects of the Gnostic storyline and was very successful at making converts. Says Valentinus in Bentley Layton's The Gnostic Scriptures, this is a quote from Valentinus, he says, He, Jesus, was continent, enduring all things. Jesus digested divinity. He ate and drank in a special way, without excreting his solids. He had such a great capacity for continence that the nourishment within him was not corrupted, for he did not experience corruptions. Now, I mentioned to you before, the Gnostics believed in a docetic Christ. Christ is a spirit being, comes down, occupies Jesus, goes up. You can't touch him. The Valentinian Jesus is not quite as docetic, not quite as spiritual. Because the, the Valentinian Jesus eats, but he doesn't poop. That's what we just read there. So, a normal flesh and blood human being, believe it or not, we all poop. That's just a universal, in fact, if you don't, you got problems, okay? <laughs> you have major problems. But not the Valentinian Jesus, he does not poop. He does not excrete solids. But... He does eat. So he's kind of somewhere in between full-on hologram and full-on flesh and blood human being. I'm not sure where you place him, but you can see Valentinus is moving things sort of like to a more palatable direction for Christians to say, you know what? Yeah, that makes sense. I couldn't not share this once I found it. Sorry. Hippolytus of Rome talks about two Valentinian Christologies. He says that the Italian Valentinians say that Christ had a psychic body, which makes sense after you've read all that Gnostic stuff, that there was a psychic body, a soulish body, not physical, a soulish body. And then the Eastern Valentinians said Christ had a spiritual body. A spiritual body cannot be touched. A psychic body could go to good or to bad. A spiritual body can't be touched. Hippolytus of Rome says, they said that the Valentinians in the East said, Christ passed through Mary as through a pipe, without any physical contact. And that quote, passing through Mary as a pipe, becomes like something that people point out a lot in later history as like just a horrifying thought that is not biblical. Now, it's hard to separate Valentinus from his followers, the Valentinians. At least some of them looked at these eons as qualities, not actual beings in the Pleroma, and they had a more positive view of the world. Ismo Dunderberg says, Although he did not consider the sensible world a perfect place, he taught that the invisible essence of God is reflected in this world and makes it reliable. So in other words, the Valentinian is not saying the world is a train wreck made by a jealous, pathetic God. He's saying, no, the world is actually a somewhat decent place, and it reflects a spiritual reality. So he has a more of a positive view of the world. So you have the Gnostics, and then you have different versions of the Gnostics. Valentinus is one version that's more Christianized, and therefore more of a threat and more of something that Christians are going to fight against than other forms of the Gnostic storyline. One of the offshoots of Valentinians was a guy named Marcus, whose followers are called Marcosians, said the following... Uh, as a confession on your deathbed, something you would say after you die, as your, uh, your soul is attempting to ascend to the higher realms, this is what you would say. And this is quoted from Irenaeus, who I'll get to next session. You say, I am a child of father, of pre-existent father. I am a child in the pre-existent one. I am returning to my own whence I came. I am a precious vase, more precious than the female who made you, 
That would be Sophia. I know myself. I know whence I am. And I call upon incorruptible wisdom, Sophia, who is in father and who is the mother of your mother, who had no father nor a male consort. Let me, let me just briefly explain this, okay? I just realized it's a little confusing. In the Valentinian version of the creation story, there's another spirit being between Sophia and Yaldabaoth called Akimoth. So you have Sophia and then Akimoth and then Yaldabaoth. And so your, your soul is ascending and you're, and you're basically calling out Yaldabaoth. It's like, my mother is above your mother. You know, and you're just like claiming authority to ascend to the higher realms and not get captured and brought into a prison or reincarnated or having some other issue. The Valentinians, says Ismo Dunderberg, divided humankind into three classes, and that neither promotion nor degradation from one class to another was possible. Valentinians held themselves to be, guess what, the spiritual ones who will be saved in any case, just due to their nature, while other members of the church were the psychic ones characterized by ambivalence. Consequently, the latter could be saved only if they were made steadfast by works and bare faith. So Valentinus, or the Valentinians who followed him, have three categories. You have the spiritual people, the psychic people, and the material people. Material people are, are hopeless. These are the people outside of the church. We have no hope of reaching them. Good luck. Then you have the psychic people. These are people in the church that could go to good or could go to bad. And then you have the spiritual people who are, of course, the Valentinians. And no matter what they do, they're going to be saved. I want to read to you a scripture, and I want you to read it with Valentinian eyes. And it will just help explain to you how attractive and deceitful this whole approach would be. And it's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 13. It says, Yet among the mature, this is Paul speaking, we do impart wisdom. What's the Greek word for wisdom again? There it is. We do implant wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age, or of the rulers, which of course we're thinking of Yaldabaoth's 365 angels and demons, who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. Again, not talking about human beings, but these spirit beings. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. I'll just cut it off here because I'm running a little long on time. But you can see how reading scripture, the Valentinians would be able to convince at least some Christians of the truth of their storyline, especially from the writings of Paul. Because Paul talks about wisdom a lot, he talks about spirit a lot, he talks about a lot of these abstract ideas. And here's the thing about Valentinians. They're in the mainstream churches. They don't have separate churches. They're in the regular church in Rome and in these other cities. And what they're doing is they're going on, on Sunday to the regular service, and then they're recruiting people to go to their studies during the week where they're going to teach them these greater or deeper or hidden truths. And if you respond and you're part of these special groups, you are, you've got to be the spiritual. Why else would you be responding? Because Paul says there are spiritual and then there are soulish, there are psychic. He uses that same Greek words. And then there's also fleshly, which is carnal, uh, some translations, right? What they're doing is they're saying, well, what Paul really meant was this. And, and how you should read this is this. And the Valentinians were incredibly successful, and they lasted at least until the 7th century. Uh, we lose touch with them in about the year 692 at the Synod of Trula, which mentioned them. All right, let's review. The Gnostics believed in a story of spiritual creation and rebellion prior to the creation of matter. These spiritual eons emanated out from the original, maximally great, unknowable monad. Number three, they thought our world was fallen, not because of human sin, but because of rebellion among the eons. The Sethian Gnostics, which is the main group I focused on for this, 
The Sethian Gnostics emphasize the seed of Seth as the chosen ones who are indwelt with the spark of the divine. Understanding knowledge, or gnosis, of your origins is how you can experience enlightenment. The Gnostic movements were hugely popular, and 2nd century Christians considered them a major threat. Valentinus streamlined Gnosticism and assigned Christ a more significant role. Valentinians attended regular church services, but then recruited members to join their meetings to gain esoteric knowledge of hidden meaning within Scripture. So we'll begin looking at the response to the Gnostics and the Valentinians in our next session as we continue on our journey through early church history. Well, that brings this session to an end. What'd you think? Come on over to restitutio.org and find episode 485, Gnostics and Valentinians, and leave your feedback there. We'd love to hear your thoughts, your questions, your comments. Well, just before we close out, I also wanted to mention a new YouTube came out with a couple of friends of mine, Tom Husty, also known as the Unitarian Anabaptist. He's got a YouTube channel called Unitarian Anabaptist. Interviews Will Barlow, and Tom had been my guest on episode 478, and Will was my guest in way back in episode 313 a few years ago, and the two of them Recently, just had a conversation that I think is worth your time if you want to go check it out at the Unitarian Anabaptist, or you can just search Tom Husty and Will Barlow and find it that way. And they talk about Will's journey of faith as well as his church plant and the exciting church that has started in Louisville, Kentucky, called Compass Christian Church. And so I definitely encourage you to take a look at that and listen through what Pastor Will is sharing as far as his own how he sees Jesus, and how he perceives of the kingdom of God and other important topics related to Christianity today. So take a look at that if you're interested. That's about it for me this week. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that at our website, restitutio.org. We'll see you next time, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.